Well, my friends, all good, and for some of you potentially awkward things, must eventually come to an end. And so today we're going to wrap up our series, Love, Marriage, Sex, and Lies. Honestly, I have to tell you, I was even sharing with the elders last night, there is so much more on this topic I want to share with you. It is so important, and there is so much at risk, there's so much danger, and yet there's so much joy and possibility attached to this topic. So perhaps we'll do a, a part two, a series reboot, a, a sex and lies spinoff, if you will. But the church calendar demands that we move on, at least for now. So before we conclude, let me just take a moment with you to see where we've been. We have, if you've been with us, tracking over the last few weeks with this young and desirous couple through this eight-chapter uh, Hebrew love song contained in the book in your Bible called The Song of Songs. Maybe you remember where we began, right? You should, because it was with a woman, well, and a woman, with a woman on fire for a man that she appears to long for from afar. Now, if you think about it, that's a pretty incredible place for a Bible book that was written in 1000 B.C. to start. I mean, at, at that time, women were considered more possessions than they were people. Their place was usually limited to being one in a thousand in a king's concubine. If a woman ever publicly voiced such sexually avert thoughts, well, she'd have been at least shamed and more likely stoned. But you see, not here and not in this book. And it starts from sentence one. As she sings out, let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth for your love is more delightful than wine. I mean, it's amazing, right? Right in the first sentence, we actually confront two cultural lies. The first is that in some way that our God is a prude, that, that there's spiritual life, and then there's our sex life over here, and the two shall never meet. Well, this book puts that lie to bed forever. God is not anti-sex, and he did not create it merely for procreation. He also created it for pleasure. Heck, it's not this, just this book that makes that claim. King Solomon, he writes to his son in the ancient book of wisdom called Proverbs, may you rejoice in the wife of your youth. May her breast satisfy you always. Now, I'm not going to get into a birds and bees talk here, but what he's wishing for for his son has nothing to do with procreation, but with pleasure. And of course, the second cultural lie that was more prevalent in days gone by, but is still at the heart of so much of our pornified culture, is that a woman's role is, is to please a man sexually. Her desires, if she has any, which of course she does, but culturally we've ignored those for centuries, well, they don't matter and they don't count. Then, then we looked at the big lie, the main whopper that sits out there in our culture, which both the Apostle Paul in the New Testament and this whole book that we're in in the Old Testament address which is that sex is just sex. It's just physical. You might remember by now that Paul told um, the church in the city of Corinth, a church that had begun to believe the same lie that, that, you know, that, that many of us have come to believe. Um, they, they took on the belief system, the culture, that sex was just sex. It was no different. But Paul says, no, no, no you don't understand. It is different. Not because it's a worse sin or that it's an unforgivable sin, but that it is a different kind of power in our lives. He said to them, flee, take off, run from sexual immorality. And again, the scriptures define sexual immorality as any sex outside the, the bounds of marriage. 
Paul tells them that, look, all other sins a person commits are outside of the body, but whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. We actually do something to hurt ourselves, physically, emotionally, spiritually, at the deepest levels when we sin sexually. Now, if you've been with us, we looked at the science behind this stuff. Remember, your good and caring Father who created you and, and created your bodies and created sex, He knows how we're made to work. He's not holding out on us, but what God is trying to do is lovingly protect us from the damage that sexual immorality does to us and in us. I mean, if you want to know why every other ad you hear today on sports radio is for ED medication, Go and do the research on what internet porn usage has done to young men's ability to relate sexually in the real world. And more importantly, what it's done to their ability to experience true and deep intimacy. See, when it comes to this book in sex, hopefully by now you've come to understand that this is also about that. God created sex for procreation and pleasure. He also created it for a tool that would help bond two into one for lifelong bonding and intimacy. It was and still is the single greatest act of giving and knownness and oneness. But most importantly, this was about that. That when used correctly, sexual intimacy within the bonds of a covenantal marriage between a man and a woman was supposed to be the best single earthly metaphor for the kind of relationship God wants to have with his people oneness, intimacy, knownness. And this is why over and over and over again in the scriptures, Jesus is always described as a bridegroom and the church is his bride. Marriage is analogous. It is representative. It is a metaphor. It is a picture of God and his people coming together. And look, now if you're not a Christian, if you're not sure that Jesus is who he said he was, then look, I hope the science stuff convinces you on this topic. But if you are a follower of Jesus, for those of us who call him Lord, then we have to take seriously what we're doing, how we are reflecting out to the world this metaphor of marriage being like the relationship of Jesus and the church. What does the culture see when he looks at us? Because look, when we sin sexually in private, we're hurting ourselves and we're dishonoring God. But when we do it publicly, we're actually hurting others and dishonoring God. We are, as his children, we are ruining what our Heavenly Father has created for the world to look at in awe and wonder and see it as analogous to God's love for them. Do you see how important this is? I mean, we could go on and on. We've taken on the lies of body image. Remember in the song how the young woman feared that the man she loved would reject her because she didn't measure up to the cultural body standards of the day. And then most importantly, given all these things, we looked at the course of the song, the line repeated over and over and yet over again by the young woman, who even in all of her desire and fawning, even though she professed to be lovesick and had found the right guy for her, how three times she swore by God to the other women in town that despite all of that, it was imperative to not arouse or awaken love until it so desires. Three times, do not arouse or awaken love, sex, until the time is right. And what we learn from this book and in other places in the scripture, that time, when that time is right, is on your wedding night, which is where we pick up our story. Now, in chapters three and four, 
after doing it right, after honoring God and his plan for them and, and reflecting correctly to their friends, the metaphor, right? The wedding day finally comes. In chapter 3, you see a royal procession making its way into town, carrying with it the bridegroom. And he rides into town in grandeur and power, which, by the way, I can't help but see the parallels for the return of Jesus, our bridegroom to earth, who the Scriptures tell us will return both in glory and power. Well, this king, upon his arrival, he begins to sing again to the woman that he's come to love. Listen in on the song with me. He says, How beautiful are you, my darling. Oh, how beautiful. Your eyes behind your veil. She's, she's in her wedding dress. Her, her veil at this point is not even able to contain her or hide her beauty. She's radiating through it in a sense. He says, your eyes are doves. Your, your hair is like a flock of goats descending from the hills of Gilead. Now, okay, I get that compliment a little bit, right? She's kind of got flowing, cascading hair. I'm not sure how well this next one translates, though. He says, your teeth are like a flock of sheep just shorn coming up from the washing. Each has its twin. Not one of them is alone. Which loosely translates, your teeth are super white, like some newly cleaned sheep, and the good news is that you have them all, none are missing. Now, this would be like you going out to your friends today and going, guys, you got to see this chick I am marrying. She is so fine. She even has all her teeth, which is kind of funny to us now, but you got to imagine 3,000 years ago, pre-dentistry was a pretty big accomplishment, let alone a compliment. So he goes on, he says, your lips, he says, they're like a scarlet ribbon. Your mouth is lovely. Your temples behind your veil are, are like the halves of a pomegranate. And then, as men are wont to do, his, his gaze begins to lower. He says, your neck is like the Tower of David, built with courses of stone, and on it hang a thousand shields, all of them shields of warriors. Scholars believe he's talking about her necklaces around her neck that are reminding her, him of these things. And then, because men will be men, he concludes, your breasts are like two fawns, like twin fawns of a gazelle that browse among the lilies. And that's it. You see, unlike the culture we live in today, where that would go on and on and down and down and rip the mystery right out of love, he stops right there. Which, of course, he should, and you want to know why. Because right then he has described seven parts of his beloved's anatomy. Her eyes, hair, teeth, lips, cheek, neck, and breasts. If you know anything about the numbers in the Scripture, seven in the Scripture is this biblical number of completion and perfection. Think about creation, right? It, it, God rests on the seventh day. It's finished. It's done. It's perfect. He has now said all that needs to be said. In fact, he sums it up this way. He looks at her and he goes, you are altogether beautiful, my darling. There is no flaw in you. I mean, it's at this point. Now they're married. He proclaims, referring to her now, he goes, until the day breaks and the shadows flee, I will go to the mountain of myrrh and to the hill of incense. Do you know what this line, until the day breaks and the shadows flee, do you know that that line was the inspiration for ACDC's You Shook Me All Night Long? Because that's what he wanted to do. He wanted her to do. He wanted to be with her all night long. Truth is, I doubt it was ACD's inspiration. But look, this is a pretty progressive song for 1000 BC. There is now no doubt 
that there's some sexual chemistry here, right? Which is what makes this following line and these following lines so seemingly out of place. You have stolen my heart, my sister, my bride. Wait, what? My sister, my bride? What is this, some kind of backwoods wedding? Uh, No wonder he was happy that she had all her teeth. He goes on, you've stolen my heart with one glance of your eyes, with one jewel of your necklace. How delightful is your love, my sister, my bride. I mean, gentlemen, talk about killing the mood, my sister, my bride. I mean, I love my sister, but there are certain times where she is the last thing I want on my mind. So what's going on here? After all of this, are these two somehow related? Because if this is a sister-brother thing, this is going to go from hot to horrible in about two seconds. Fear not, my romantic friends, because there is no familiar reference being intimated here. He's, he, he actually refers to her as his sister. This is a term of endearment. He actually does it four times as they prepare for their wedding night. And the reason is because sex and marriage are not just about chemistry. Chemistry is easy. They're more, it's more than that. It's about closeness and community and confidentiality and companionship. It is referenced over and over because this is no sexual hookup. This is not some kind of friends with benefits thing. He says to our listeners, he goes, you have stolen my heart. Remember now in the beginning, this was just kind of a purely physical thing. His songs were about how she looked. But now there's something more going on. It's deeper for him. You see, when the Bible speaks of somebody's heart, it it speaks more of, more. it's not just about their feelings or emotions. It's about their whole being. He loves her with his whole being. Guys, this is what God had in mind. It still is what he has in mind for sex and for marriage. The spiritual union, the coming together of two very different people, physically, yes, but also emotionally and spiritually, becoming one being. It is the picture of a perfect marriage. And it's just not the groom who feels this way. His bride later would sing to him, his, would sing of him, his mouth is sweetness itself. He is altogether lovely. This is my beloved. This is my friend. Chemistry and companionship. They are lovers and they are friends. In fact, even more than friends. The word the woman used there to describe friendship, it can also be used for for like a comrade at arms. Somebody that you trust enough to go into battle with. Because they are in some sense, and if you're married you know, they are in some sense going to war. They're going to battle not each other, but they are going to battle together. They have each other's backs because they're fighting for something and for one another. They now share not just bodies, but a purpose and a mission because in a good marriage, listen to me now, in a good marriage, it's not just about the bedroom. It's about the battlefield. Now, Joan and I have been married for 30 plus years. I would tell you exactly how many, but I might get it wrong, and now that we're online, it would stand perpetually as a reminder of my lack of thoughtfulness. But here's what I think both of us could tell you. We still very much love each other. We're still attracted to each other. We still have lots of chemistry, but listen, I mean, eventually the honeymoon ends and life begins, 
And if it's only about the bed and not about the battle, you're going to have a problem. If you have only chemistry, but you don't have a cause, you're going to struggle. Ben Stewart, he, he puts it this way. He says, the strongest, most satisfying marriages are a community with a cause. A community with a cause. And while the church, while, while pastors like me have done a wonderful job over the years talking about the values that we should have within a marriage, how a wife should respect her husband, how a husband should love his wife, and how we should lovingly submit to one another, these marriage values are all laid out by Paul in Ephesians chapter 5. That is one of my go-to Bible chapters. It's super important. But where we failed a bit is in preaching about a vision for a marriage. Where our marriages are supposed to be going. What battles are we entering into, taking on together? Now, what's the most common thing that you hear when marriages start to come apart? You know it. You hear it all the time. Heck, some of you are, are feeling it right now. People will come and, and, and they'll say to me and you, well, we just kind of grew apart or our, our lives went in different directions. You see, that's not a value statement. That's a vision statement. That, that's not a chemistry problem. It, it's a cause problem. We no longer share a cause have you ever had a cause conversation in your marriage? What's the point of what we're doing? Where are we going? What's our battle? What's our, our, our shared fight? Because you should before it's too late. And now remember, since this is about that, I'll give you a cause to consider. What have you determined together that your marriage cause was going to to be to make this about that, to make your marriage, to make its core purpose, to reflect to the world. Heck, maybe that's too grandiose. Maybe to your neighborhood or to your workplace. Gosh, maybe just start with your kids to make your marriage reflect as accurately as possible how God loves his people. Parents at home, with the way you love one another, would your kids say, if I asked, wow, I, I really, Pastor John, you don't need to tell me about how God loves me because I understand how God loves me by the way my mom and dad love each other. I mean, yeah, there's chemistry between them, but there's more than that. They pursue one another, forgive one another, sacrifice one another. They submit to one another. They rejoice over one another with singing. They constantly praise one another. They constantly compliment each other. They defend one another. Friends, that is a cause that together as husband and wife, we could agree to fight for. That is a battle. And it is a battle because remember, your, your marriage has enemies. In the spiritual realm all around us, there rages a war to destroy this metaphor for the culture. And the enemy is winning. It's even winning in our Christian marriages. I have to tell you, that for Joan and I, this determination that our marriage would not wind up on the trash heap, that it would, would be this kind of testimony to our children, that has carried us throughout some of our toughest moments. This, this young couple in, in our song, guys, they're more than lovers. They are fighters. We know they have chemistry, but now we've seen they have a cause which of course does not mean that there will not be a battle. Just watch. You know, it's so interesting. You know where this book actually comes to its pinnacle? I mean, the writing is unbelievable. 
There are exactly 111 verses before and 111 verses after this verse from the groom. He says, I have come into my garden, my sister, my bride. I have gathered my myrrh with my spice. I have eaten my honeycomb and my honey. I have drunk my wine and my milk. Philip Reichen writes that more than this happy little, excuse me, more than that, this happy little couple will not say which is what makes the Song of Songs suitable for audiences of all ages. In these two verses, which form the exact center of Song of Songs, the Bible brings us to the threshold of the bridal suite. Now, unlike our own culture, which usually brings sex way too far out in the open, the Song of Songs takes us right to the edge. We get close enough to sense the breathtaking beauty of sexual love in a covenant marriage, but then the groom gently closes the door. And the bride pulls down the shade. And outside, the bridal party is pronouncing the benediction. Eat, friends, drink, and be drunk with love. What could go wrong, right? Except life. Because no sooner, though, no sooner that the, the honeymoon is over does the battle begin. It's literally the next verse. She says, I slept, but my heart was awake. Listen my beloved is knocking. So apparently, here's what's going on. Uh, it's another day. could be day two. I don't know. Apparently, the wife is now home alone in bed without her husband, who it seems like you'll see she was expecting, but he didn't come home, and so she did what any wife would do. She gave up. She blew out the candles. She went to bed. She took off, you know, the, the fancy clothes, and, and now she's sleeping. And he decides... Now's the right time to come home. And so he comes a-knocking. Starts whispering through the door, Open to me, my sister, my darling, my dove, my flawless one. I love this, right? I mean, ladies, has your husband ever tried this one on you? Long day at work, and then you had to deal with the kids. Meanwhile, he's either out with his friends, or he stayed late at the office, or he had to finish watching that baseball game, and then suddenly just pops into bed and hits you with his version of, Oh, my darling, my dove. Well, I mean, she comes right back at him with what most wives would. She says, I've taken off my robe. Must I put it on again? I've washed my feet. Must I soil them again? Look, she's like, dude, I took a bath that I had already slipped into something more comfortable, and you blew it. I went to bed. The moment has passed. She's sleeping. Maybe she's got a headache. But he doesn't give up. Ladies, you know how persistent some men can be. And look, she's still in love. I mean, it, it could be night two of the honeymoon. So, you know, here's what she does. She eventually gives in. My beloved, she says, thrust his hand through the latch opening, and my heart began to pound for him. I, I arose to open for my beloved, and my hands dripped with myrrh, my fingers with flowing myrrh on the handles of the bolt. I opened for my beloved, but my beloved had left. He was gone. My heart sank at his departure. I mean, she gets up, she, she puts her robe back on and perfumes herself back up again with the myrrh and, and goes to open the bowl, thinking that when she opens it, her man is going to be there and he is going to think to himself, this girl is too much. She even changed her mind about the whole thing. But that's not what happened. The problem is, He's gone. He took off because he's ticked. I mean, really, 
really, you can see him outside, right, just stewing. You're not going to answer the door? You're not going to answer the door? You want to stay in bed? Fine, fine, I'll show you. I'm out of here. I mean, is this not the most realistic book in the world? It's a new marriage, and their first fight is about sex, and one of them got their feelings hurt, so they took off, and then the other got their heart broken. I mean, this book, this song is both 3,000 years old and as new as last night for some of us. But, but watch what happens here because it, it is, in my opinion, so unusual and so unexpected, so foreign, and so costly. And boy, could we learn from this. You see, with her heartbroken, what you'd expect for her to do would be to slam the door closed, rebolt it, go back to bed and cry herself to sleep, all the while planning how she's going to get even for this and even with this unfeeling jerk. I mean, in our experiences, right, this is when the woman wonders if she married the wrong guy and the guy goes down to town looking for a new woman. I can just hear them. Oh, you know, we just kind of drifted apart. But that's not what happens here. You see, here, as soon as she realizes he was gone, she went looking for him. She went searching for him. She says, I looked for him but didn't find him. I, I called him, but, I didn't, but he did not answer. And so her pursuit of him is so intense, not thinking about herself or her safety, but only her lover. She runs out in her night clothes into the city in the dark, in the middle of the night, by herself, a woman. She puts herself in harm's way in order to pursue the one she loves. She puts herself in harm's way in order to pursue the one she loves. She does not love him with words. She loves him with a cost attached, one which she would unfortunately pay. The next line says that, she says, the watchmen found me as they made their rounds in the city. When they did, they beat me, they bruised me, they took away my cloak, those watchmen of the walls. You see, this woman, she goes out to look for her husband. Presumably, she's still in her night clothes. She's got a lot of perfume on, given her state of undress. The local authorities that are parading around in the streets assume the worst about her and her reputation and character. And rather than helping her and protecting her, they violate her. And there's a lot to be said about that about what men have done to women over millennia, about the evil that can be perpetrated on the innocent by those in power. But the song just leaves it here. Perhaps the ultimate message being that true love and pursuit of the lost will always have a cost. It will for husbands, it will for wives, and it did for Jesus and his church. It did for Jesus as he chases you. Because you see, this is also about that. And so what happens next? Well, <laughs> she picks herself up and kind of dusts herself off. And, and she, she heads in further into the streets. And, and, and she runs across her friends. And she appeals to her friends to help her find her husband. She says, daughters of Jerusalem, I charge you, if you find my beloved, what will you tell him? Please tell him I am faint with love. And you know what? After all she's been through now, you, you know what they say to her? I mean, you can picture her standing there beaten and bruised and, and clothes hanging off her. They look at her and they go, how is your beloved better than others, most beautiful of women? How is your beloved better than others that you so charge us? 
I, I have to tell you, that sounds a lot like to me. Unfortunately, it sounds a lot like to me the advice that we often, way too often, give to others when they, they are experiencing marital difficulties. Girl, you don't need that guy. I mean, look at you. Look what happened to you. Look what he did to you. Look, you are beautiful. You can do better than him. I mean, if he really loved you, he never would have, you know, fill in the blank. Gosh, guys, if I could encourage us all not to do this to one another, not to fall into this habit. See, instead of, instead of joining her in the search, they tell her to forget him, forget about him, just move on. You know, it's funny, when I do weddings, weddings have witnesses, and witnesses have a role. And I always ask the witnesses to take on a special role and to, to say yes to a vow. I ask them that when either of these young marrieds comes to them to complain about the state of the marriage, to complain about, about the bride or the groom, will you not just listen to the complaint and encourage them to leave, but will you say to them, you know, I was a witness. I was there. I heard what you said. I heard the promises you made. I would really encourage you to go home and, and figure this out. Now, in answer to the question about, about his worthiness, the woman, she goes on to sing about her husband and his or her love for him. Actually, the song echoes almost in exact ways the song previously he sung about her. In fact, she's so convincing that the women in town actually go, oh, okay, and they go hunting for him and they bring him home. And you can check this out if you want. If you think I'm making this up. You know, their fight actually ends the way any good marital argument does. Makeup sex. And I'm not making that up. I told you this story is as real as it gets. And she concludes, I am my beloved's and my beloved is mine. We're one again. But it came at a cost. You know what it took? It took at least one of them. Even in the, in the midst of the most difficult of circumstances, even at the steepest of costs, to not give up on love, to not walk away from the marriage. In fact, that's the conclusion of the message of the song. Marriages, love, relationships. The point is, in the final chapter, they're worth fighting for, no matter how steep the cost. So fight for them and for each other, and for love, and oneness, and unity, and wholeness, and knownness. And here's why. The book culminates with what's been called the greatest love song ever sung. She cries out to the one she loves, place me like a seal over your heart, like a seal on your arm, for love is as strong as death. It's jealousy unyielding as the grave. It, it burns like blazing fire, like a mighty flame. Many waters cannot quench love. Rivers cannot sweep it away. If one were to give all the wealth of one's house for love, it would be utterly scorned. To what can you compare the, the power of love that can make two one? Well, she says, it's like, kind of like a seal that back in the day a wealthy person would carry around as proof of their identity. It was, it was a symbol of their identity. She says, in a sense, I want you to wear me 
as a seal over your heart publicly so everybody will know that you are mine and I am yours. Our identities will merge. She says, love is as strong as the strongest force known to man, death. It is immovable and irresistible. Who can fail to answer the call when it comes? Death has defeated great armies. It has conquered mighty kings. When death finally lays its cold hand on someone, its grip will never let go. That's when she says this, excuse me, that's what she says that this love is like. It never lets go. You can't get away from it. She says that this love is like a flame that even flowing rivers can't question. And she concludes that this kind of love, this kind of love, if you were to offer all you had in your house for it, you'd be laughed at because it wouldn't be nearly enough. In New Testament terms, this kind of love is the pearl of great price. It is the treasure buried in a field. And that, my friends, because of its worth, because of its value, listen to me now, this is why you must protect it. This is why you wait for the right time to enjoy it. This is why you cherish it and value it and battle and fight like heck for it despite the cost. The cost is nothing compared to the value of love. Now, I, can conc I conclude our talks on this song with this because, remember, this is really about that. This kind of love is not exclusive to marriage. In fact, it, at best, it can be glimpsed there. This is an eternal love that can be experienced by, well, by anyone, young or old, woman or man, single or married. This incredible book that God placed right in the middle of your Bible, it's there because God wants you to know this is the love that he has for you. He wants you to, to know him and to experience it. I mean, think about the parallels, right? Like the husband in the song who came home late at night knocking on the door of his beloved. Jesus tells us that today, right now, this morning, here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I'll come in and eat with that person and they with me. And while so often, maybe most of your life, you've replied, you know what, it's too late. I, I've already gone to bed. I'm too tired. I'll answer the door tomorrow, Jesus. Even when you have turned your back on him time and time again, it is the same Jesus that at great personal danger continues to come looking for you. He came willing to endure all kinds of abuses, all kinds of embarrassment. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even a criminal's death, on a cross. Do you understand that knowing exactly what kind of sinner you are, Jesus nevertheless was willing to fight for your love. And he took that fight all the way to the cross. And he did this because he loves you. He did this because he sees the beauty in you despite what the culture has told you. He sings over you the way this husband sang over his wife and because he wants to have a relationship with you that will go on and on forever. And while he has time and time again had more than enough grounds to leave or file for divorce or walk away or give up, he never has. He never will. 
The ball always remains in our court. Next week, I'm going to do a two-part quick series in preparation for our baptism service on the 13th. It's going to be called I Will, where we're going to look back at Jesus' invitation to follow him and to be baptized. The question that lingers is, will you say I will? You see, the Song of Songs serves as a giant wedding invitation. Each of us have been, been given the invite, and each of us needs to answer You are invited to what the Bible calls the wedding supper of the Lamb. You've been included on what Riken calls the longest guest list ever, drawn from people of every tribe, every tongue, every nation. The question remains, will you come? Will you say yes? See, Jesus asks you this morning, place me like a seal on your heart. In a sense, be identified with me publicly. Baptism is your public yes to the invitation. And here's what I know. He hopes you'll say yes, I will. Friends, listen to me now. Stop believing the lies. Sex is not just sex. It is something so much more because this is about that. And so we fight for our purity, for his metaphor, for our marriages, And then today, and and then again publicly on June 13th, I want you to do this. I want you to rest in the love of the one who has fought and won the battle over sin and death for you, Jesus Christ. To his invitation say, I will. And know and experience a love like no other.